There it is. It's so good to see you. If this is your first time with us, like uh, Jordan said, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, and it's a delight to be here with you tonight. I uh, was so emotional sitting on the front row worshiping, thinking about uh, this place, this community, uh, New Life Friday Night, and what it has meant to me over the years. There is, um, I've been a Christian all my life. I've been in so many different churches. There's a spirit that this place holds just Friday night that I don't know even exactly how to describe what that spirit is, but there's a richness here. There's a purity here. Christ is exalted in this place. And uh, it doesn't like belong to anybody, but everybody kind of does it when they come together. And I, so I just am so fond <laughs> of this place. It always feels like I'm coming home when I come to New Life Friday night. And I'm saying that uh, in part also just because I was so, while I was worshiping, I was thinking about some of you who are sitting, you've kind of been visiting here Friday night and checking it out, and you're kind of on the outskirts of the community looking in, sort of wondering, would this be a good place for me? I'm telling you, this is a great community for you to belong to. It's been a refuge to me and my wife over the years, and it'll be a refuge for you too. Can you receive that? Yeah, tonight, all right. Well, good job, Friday night. Look at, and look at all of you here. The weather is terrible out there. As you came tonight, you're the super Christians. So we're so excited about that. And you guys watching online, you're great too. But the, the super <laughs> Christians are here. Well, happy new year to you. Uh, hope the year's off to a good start for you by a show of hands. Uh, how many of you, your new year's resolutions are broken already? And safety in numbers. Yeah, safety in numbers. I have come to learn that a lot of people, they just don't even do New Year's resolutions anymore, you know, but I'm like a big resolutions guy. I like it. You know, you kind of think about what are the things that I like want to improve in my life in this next year, you know, the fresh start, new calendar and all of that. And so maybe this is the year where you decide to like start the graduate program that you've always kind of dreamed of doing, you know, or maybe like this is the year where you really get your finances in order, you know, and we're going to really save money and all of that. Or maybe like this is the year when you're going to lose that final 10 pounds. I have a good friend who posted on social media a couple years ago. He said, uh, last year, my New Year's resolution was to lose 10 pounds and I have 15 to go. And sometimes it just kind of goes like that. But whether you do resolutions or not, uh, what I love about the church is that the church actually doesn't care that much about resolutions. You know, like if you do them, that's great. If you don't do them, that's whatever. Because that's not what we're really into. We have bigger fish to fry than New Year's resolutions. Our thing in the church is something called discipleship. Can everybody say discipleship? And discipleship really is the substance of the Christian life. Discipleship is that process whereby the Spirit takes our lives and conforms them to the reality of Christ Jesus. And, uh, and when we, by the way, when we become conformed to the reality of Christ, when we're made in the image of Christ Jesus, then actually we are as happy as we could possibly be. So one of the reasons I think that we create all these New Year's resolutions is because we think that just on the other side of the accomplishment of that resolution, we will be happy. We'll be so much happier if we're skinnier, and we'll be so much happier if we get the job promotion, and we'll be so much happier if we make more money, and I have news for you. You won't. Because happiness actually is found in giving ourselves over to God and his will and his purposes for our lives. And so discipleship is the big fish that we fry in the church. And there are all of these like places in the scriptures where the claim of God on our lives is like condensed in a way that helps us see just what God is asking us to be and to do. And one of those places is in this sequence of texts here in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody say the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, as we'll see in a second, uh, he's got all of these crowds, mob of people following him, and he takes his followers, his disciples, up on a mountaintop, and he begins to sort of open their eyes to the reality of the kingdom, and then he starts teaching them how to live into it. What does it look like to pattern your life on this invisible reality of the kingdom that lies just beneath the surface. That's what Jesus is after. I'm gonna say one more thing about this and then we'll jump into the text. There are some folks in the church, and this has sometimes been said like in the history of the church, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a thing that we're actually supposed to do, but the Sermon on the Mount is like this lofty ideal that Jesus puts in front of us that ultimately crushes us because we go, oh my gosh, that'd be impossible. And we fall back on the grace of God and just kind of trust God to do everything. And of course, we can and we must and we should always be falling back on the grace of God. And no good thing do we accomplish in our lives except that God does it in us and through us. Yet, Jesus does not say these things in order for us to kind of disregard them and go, oh, that's too hard. We're not going to do that. Because he actually says at the end of Matthew chapter 7 that I'll tell you what that person is like who hears my words, Jesus says, and puts them into practice. He said, that person is like the wise person that dug down deep and laid their foundation on a rock. And when the rain came and the winds rose and beat against that house, it didn't fall. Why? Because it was well built. They did the things that Jesus said. And so as we immerse ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're doing is we're learning how to live our lives in a way that leads to flourishing. And it also makes our lives impervious to all of that stuff that the enemy wants to throw at us. And so with that, we'll be in the book of Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna start in verse one. But before we open the scriptures, let's pray. And can you now, church, just begin to reach out for Jesus? He calls himself the bread of life. And he says that if you're hungry, you can come to me and you can eat. And faith is the thing that draws Jesus near and causes our hearts to feast upon him. And so we reach out to you right now by faith, Lord Jesus. We are hungry and thirsty for God. We need you. We know that. That's why we're here tonight. We're not here to get God off our backs. We're not here to fulfill a religious duty. We're here because if we don't have God, we're lost. And so we're calling out for you, crying out for the living God tonight. We pray that wherever we are hungry for you tonight, whatever the need for you is tonight, that you would satisfy it with the gift of your presence. We pray that you would speak to us tonight in a language that we can understand. Just like the miracle that happened at Pentecost, they all said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And we pray that tonight, whatever comes out of my mouth, that we would hear the wonders of God declared in a language that we can understand so that we can praise you so that we can love the world around us and live in a way that glorifies God. So come and help us. We're praying that the words of the preacher's mouth tonight and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter five and verse one, the scripture says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, so the whole mob of people following him because of all the healings that he did and driving out demons and all this teaching. He's got thousands of people following him. It says that when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So Jesus sees this mob of people and he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down and he begins to teach. That image right there should call to mind the image of another great leader in Israel's history. It starts with the letter M. Moses, that's right. Moses delivers the people of God up out of Egypt and then he goes up on a mountain and he receives a revelation from God and then he brings it to the people. And all throughout the book of Matthew, there are gonna be these comparisons that Matthew makes between Jesus and Moses. That's Matthew's way of saying that just as Moses was a teacher to the Israelites, so Jesus stands up and he is the great authoritative teacher to humanity. And so there's all of these little comparisons, but there are also contrasts that uh, Matthew makes between Jesus and Moses. And one of those contrasts is found right here in this text. Because Moses goes up on the mountaintop, and when he comes down from the mountain, what does he give the people? The law, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He starts giving them instructions right out of the gate. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits down, but rather than bringing instructions, he does something much different. What does he do? Well, he starts saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Like instead of telling the people what to do, he starts giving them a new vision of reality. Because we can only really act in a world that we can see And so what Jesus, the teacher, does is he opens our eyes. He baptizes our eyes so that we can see the world as it really is under the reign of God. And he does that by using this word, blessed. Everybody say blessed. Blessed here is the Greek word makarios. Can you say makarios? And it has two definitions, both of which are really critical for understanding what Jesus is doing here. Number one, makarios means something like this. You can put the next slide up. Is it coming? Pertaining to being fortunate or happy because of circumstances, okay? Pertaining to being fortunate or happy because of circumstances. And so this is kind of the way that we talk a lot, you know? Somebody has like a great year financially and we go, oh man, you're blessed, right? It's a great year for you. How lucky you are, how fortunate you are. Or somebody's marriage is going amazing and we go, oh man, you're blessed. Or somebody, their kids are just happy and they're all like high achievers. And what do we say about them? We say you're you're, you're, you're blessed, pertaining to being fortunate or happy because of circumstances. But number two, makarios means something like this, pertaining to being especially favored or a recipient of the divine favor. And so how many people have you heard, maybe you've spent some time in the church and somebody's got a good year kind of going on, you ask them how they're doing, what do they say? They say, I'm blessed and, yeah, you got it. I'm blessed and highly favored. Why are they saying that? They got all this stuff that's happening that's working. So what's fascinating about what Jesus does here is that he says that certain groups of people are blessed who we would never think of as blessed. The poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, the hungry and the thirsty for righteousness. Later he'll say that even the persecuted are blessed. It's like what Jesus is doing with this word is he's trying to turn our world inside out, helping us to see Life as it really is under the reign of God. So I'd say this to you tonight, that Jesus is redefining for us who really is in a favored position with God. He's redefining who's in a favored position with God. Now, what I want to do tonight is I'm going to take each, uh, each one of these first four Beatitudes and just unpack them a little bit and show them to you. So the first one here, Matthew 5 and verse 4, Jesus starts at verse 3. He says, blessed are the 
poor in spirit. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Scholars will say that what Jesus is drawing on here is really the imagination of the psalmist. And when you read the Psalms, you'll hear the psalmist constantly describing themselves as poor. The psalmist says this in Psalm 34 and verse 6. The psalmist says, This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. And so the psalmist is in trouble. His life was going okay, and all of a sudden it's gotten knocked off kilter in some way. And he says, God, help! And what is the experience? The help of God. God comes to his rescue. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I'd say this, that the poor in spirit are those whose circumstances have thrown them into complete dependence. Everybody say complete dependence. Complete dependence upon who? Upon God. There's something about having your life all of a sudden shaken in some profound way that it opens you up to God in a way that is so unusual. I think about yesterday, I was just in the hospital with a family at St. Francis over there off of Woodman, and the mom has been struggling with cancer for a couple years, wrestling with this thing and trying to get it right, and she sought some special treatments, and this past summer, it looked like they had it under control. And she took a PET scan, and the PET scan came, came back and showed that there was no cancer in her body, and then at the end of the summer, all of a sudden, She started not feeling right, and they went back into the hospital and did the scans, and sure enough, the cancer had returned and was gobbling up her liver, and I sat there in the hospital room with them yesterday, her and her husband, listening to the story, hearing them pour out their hearts, and at about 45 minutes into the conversation, I said to them, I said, how are you guys doing? And she just broke. She said, we're a mess. And I said, God is for you. And the presence of God rushed into that place. There's something about circumstances not being optimal that opens us up to the reality of God in a way that's so profound and so unusual. And I know that you've experienced that in your life. I certainly have. And I've had times in my life where things were like, good, everything's organized and fine. I got enough money in the bank and everything's kind of working around me and my kids are working just fine and everything's going just fine. And then all of a sudden that curveball comes and then you buckle like you fall to your knees. God, I need you. God, help in heaven and on earth. I have no one but you, please. And you hate when you're in those circumstances, All of a sudden, I'm trusting God in a way that I wasn't trusting God before. I'm depending on God in a way that I wasn't depending on God before. There's like traffic spiritually between me and God in a way that there wasn't before. I've got news for you tonight, brothers and sisters. It's not bad for us to be in those situations. I think that too many of us, we have this idea that the longer we go in our faith and the more, you know, like the better we get at following Jesus, at some point... What's going to happen is that we're going to have enough money in the bank and our bodies are going to be just fine and the family's all going to be fine and relationships are going to be fine and so we won't really have to trust God anymore. Do you realize how many, probably if you search your own heart, you realize that that's the way you're thinking about your faith. That you're trying, you know what you're trying to do? You're trying to graduate from faith. What a dubious thing to do. (laughs) The... The whole nature of our relationship with God is faith. 
And so it's not bad for us to be in circumstances where we have to depend upon God more, which is why Jesus says, blessed are the who? The poor in spirit, those that are calling on God for help. Why? Because the kingdom is theirs. They actually have everything. And I think about all of the good things that being tossed in those difficult circumstances do to us. I think about a pastor that I got to know some years ago. I was living in Denver, and he and I connected over social media or something. And I remember hopping on a phone call with him, and we're kind of telling each other about our lives and our stories and all that stuff and what we're doing. And I remember hearing his story. And he said, you know, Andrew, years ago, my wife and I, like, we had this, now it was his ex-wife. He said, my wife and I, we had this dream to plant this church here in our home state of Indiana, where we're from. And the church was going to look like this and be like this. And we all had all of our very clear ideas about what the culture of it was going to be. It was a dream that we held so dear in our hearts. And then we got the chance to do it. He said, and the Lord blessed it, poured his spirit out on it, and the church became strong. It, like, happened. He said, and it was so amazing. We watched it grow from 100 people to 200 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, he said, and I was having the time of my life. And in the middle of all of that, the success of all of that, one day I discovered that my wife was having an affair with somebody in our congregation, a key leader in the congregation. And he said the whole thing, like this little cancer that had been breeding, all of a sudden it metastasized and it completely conquered our congregation. The thing just went into a tailspin and within six months we closed the door. I had to walk away from my dream. And I'm listening to him telling this story. And I remember saying to him, I said, man, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I'll never forget these words. He said, Andrew, I wouldn't wish what happened to me there upon my worst enemy. It was awful. And yet, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world because of what God did in me through it and who God made me in it, that's the greatest gift that God could ever give me. I know God now in a way I didn't know God before and nobody can ever take it away from me. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why is that? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And maybe you're here in this place tonight and you're sitting here and some curveball came to you this week or this year. You had such high hopes about how this year was going to turn out and we're 20 days into it. And it feels like it's spinning out of control. And you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking to yourself that God is mad at you or that you have failed in some way or that the divine, the divine disfavor, displeasure rests upon you. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. When your life is spinning wildly out of control, when things are not working the way that they're supposed to work, when your highest hopes and dreams are shattered and you feel like you have nothing left and you're with the psalmist, with Job, scraping yourself in the ashes and calling upon the name of the Lord saying, God, help! That's when you're blessed. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to say this. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, why? Because they're going to be comforted. Nobody hops out of bed in the morning going, man, I hope I have a good cry today. (laughs) They just don't do it. We get up out of bed in the morning and What we hope is that everything just works fine and nothing happens to us that causes us grief. 
And yet Jesus says that in this world you will have trouble. The griefs are going to come. And sometimes when we experience things that grieve us, what happens is, again, we think that we're outside of the divine will in some way. But Jesus says that all of that is a lie too. That when you're in that place of grief, where your highest hopes and dreams are shattered, when you've had to let go of the things that are most dear to you, Jesus actually says that somehow that is opening up the door for you for an experience of God that you couldn't have had any other way. I think of the great statement of the great George MacDonald over 100 years ago. He said that the deepest truth must be deepest joy, but joy can't open the door to that deepest truth. He says somehow it's sorrow that opens the door to the deepest truth. That somehow when we experience sadness and sorrow, when we walk through things that grieve us to the core, it shows us something of the reality of God and how good and kind God is for us that would be impossible for us to experience any other way. The problem with most of us, you know what it is? Is that we go through things that grieve us and we go, ah, we can't like talk about that thing. Because like I'm supposed to be blessed and highly favored, Right? And if you live this Christian life in the right way, you're never going to go through grief and you're never going to go through pain and you're never going to go through sadness. And so we have all of these like these huge pockets of our lives that God hasn't touched because we haven't exposed them to the healing power of the Lord. I think about some of the experiences that I have had in the church walking with Jesus over the years. I think about a really difficult year that I had some years ago, one of those experiences where uh, you almost instantly go into like trying to take care of everybody else mode. And the thing that you're going through, it's grieving you to the core and it's hurting you. You're wounded and you need those wounds tended to, but you're looking after everybody else. And I went into one of those modes for a very long time. Yeah, I've got this stuff that I need to deal with, but everybody else is hurting too. And so I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of you and take care of you. And I remember being on a ministry trip over in the UK and I was in a prayer meeting at a church in London and about 50 or 60 pastors in in a room And the guy who was leading this meeting was a wonderful old man of the faith by the name of Sandy Miller. Knew God through and through, Sandy did. And Sandy taught on prayer and he taught on worship and he taught about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, pastors, I want to invite all of you just to stand. And he said, we're going to enter into a time of just welcoming the Spirit into our midst. And he said, this is how we're going to do that. He said, I want you all just to begin to sing a new song in the Spirit. No music, no worship leader, If you've ever never been in a room like this, by the way, it'll blow your mind. 50 and 60 people just standing before the Lord, some of them singing in other tongues, others singing in their native languages. And even though there was nobody like putting the whole thing together, the Spirit orchestrated it into this music that was some of the most beautiful singing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I just remember the Spirit falling upon me like rain and I hit the deck wailing my eyes out for the better part of an hour. And I don't know if you've ever been in a space like that where the spirit begins to touch those deep places of pain, but it was like, it was like what I felt was like the Lord reaching down inside and all of that ache and all of that hurt and all of that anger and all of that rage, all that yuck inside of me. It was like he began to draw the poison out of me, pull that thing up by the roots. And at the same time as I'm wailing my eyes out before the Lord, I'm also experiencing that sweet comfort of the Holy Spirit. Oh, look at how good you are, God. You know me even in those places. You know me even in that ache. You're with me even in that pain. And all of a sudden there's a knowledge of God that opens up to you. And I've known God my whole life, my whole life, but I never knew him quite like that. How did that happen? 
I gave God permission to touch the place of pain. We've been a congregation, New Life East, for the last three years or so, and we've had so many amazing moments together as a group. But I think about the most, the moment that we have had together that I've heard the most about over the last couple years happened about two years ago in a service. And I just remember we're worshiping together on a Sunday morning, and I just had this word in my spirit that the Lord wanted to touch people who were in pain. And so I got up in front of the congregation, I said, I said, brothers and sisters, this morning, I think that there are some of you that you're carrying around pockets of pain that you haven't dealt with yet. And tonight, or this morning, I said, what the Lord is doing is he is giving you the gift of tears. And if you just need a good, solid cry tonight, God is giving you that gift tonight. Would you just receive? And I watched the tears fall all over the congregation. And in our three years as a church, there is no single moment that I've heard more about than that moment. Friends, you know what I'm pleading with you tonight? Let God in. We spend so much time with those places of ache and hurt and pain, trying to medicate that stuff and handle it some other way. And all that it does is it becomes toxic and it warps our humanity. Our God is a God that says, come to me. But the psalmist says that he's near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the one who is crushed in spirit. Paul says that God is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. When we open our lives up to him, what we experience is we experience his presence, his knowledge of us in places that we didn't know he was available to us. So maybe you're here tonight and you've got ache and you've got grief and you've got pain that you haven't exposed to the Lord. I'm here to say to you with Jesus tonight, blessed are those who... Mourn. Why? Because the comfort of the Lord is coming to you. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then Jesus says this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We have a difficult time with this one, partially because we don't really know who the meek are. What does it mean to be meek? Does being meek just mean that you're kind of a pushover with everything? Well, I don't know. But here's a definition of meek. The meek are those who refuse to bully or force their agenda. The meek are those who refuse to bully or force their agenda. And this is one of those beatitudes again where you go, what are you talking about, Jesus? Because like we live in this world that is like a dog-eat-dog world, don't we? And so we look at this, we go, you don't bully and force your agenda. You're just going to get taken advantage of all over the place. This is a dog-eat-dog world, man. You got to look out for yourself. You got to watch your back because nobody else is going to watch your back. You got to fight for your rights, right? You got to stand up for what's yours. You got to take what's yours or you're just going to get taken advantage of. And Jesus says that the meek are actually the ones who are blessed because they are the ones who will inherit the, they'll inherit the earth. Friends, we live in an anti-meek world. And do you know why the world that we live in is anti-meek? Because the unbelieving world doesn't know that God is on our side. And so you have to bully And you have to force your agenda. When you don't think that God is looking out for you, you got to fight for your rights. But when you believe that the God of the angel armies has your back, it changes the way that you live your life. The psalmist put it this way in a psalm that Jesus was most certainly drawing on. When he said this beatitude, the psalmist says in Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Don't fret, he says, it's only lead, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil, they will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they won't be found. But the meek will what? Inherit, do we have the text? Oh, it says the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The psalmist is like, you see all those evil people doing all that evil stuff? Don't worry about it. God is taking care of them and God is taking care of you. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter eight. He says that if God is, then what? If God is for us, then what? If God is, then what? We have nothing to worry about. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to try to force our agenda. We can live in a way that's full of trust, knowing that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God is plenty capable of handling the affairs of your life. Do you trust that? It takes a lifetime, I think, to learn how to trust it. We got this gal who goes to New Life East, wonderful woman. She grew up in, a, in an awful, awful home. Her dad was sexually abusive, physically abusive, emotionally abusive, and verbally abusive. And when she was 15 years old, she just couldn't take it anymore. And so she decided to leave the house, ran off with a boy, and big surprise, she ran from one abuser to another abuser. And this guy was hard drinking and hard smoking and hard living and a hard man to be around. She lived with him for a couple years, married, and she wound up getting pregnant. And he's abusing her, physically abusing her, emotionally abusing her. And she gets to 19 years old and she just can't take it anymore. And so she divorces him. And who does she go back to? Her abusive dad abusive home and now she's got a baby and she's trying to figure out where am I in all of this and when she was 19 years old with a baby living with her parents she uh, entered into a relationship with a couple Christians <laughs> and these Christians start sharing the gospel with her they start sharing Jesus with her and she comes to church one Sunday and the preacher is preaching and she said all of a sudden the spirit of God fell upon me and all of that hardness of heart that I had began to break off of my life. And I found myself trusting Jesus. She said, I found a new life. I was born again. Like my life started afresh. And she said, as soon as I was born again, as soon as I like had the new life in Jesus, I look at my family and my parents and I realize this is a toxic situation. I can't belong to that anymore. This isn't any good for me. And so she left her parents with her kid and she began with the help of the Lord to like start a life. She goes to school and she gets a job and she starts rebuilding all of her life. And all during those years that she's away from her family, everything in her wanted to go back and try to reconcile and make things good. And so she stayed in touch with her family and she'd spend time with them here and there and try to share the gospel with them. And they were hard-hearted. She'd try to reconcile with them and have hard conversations. And she said, it just felt like I was hitting a brick wall with these people over and over again. And so she said, several years ago, I just sensed from the Lord that I was to create some distance. Like the Lord was saying to me, I, I'm like, I'm gonna work it all out for your family. You just pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. She said, so I did that for a couple years. She said, and then this past Thanksgiving, I got a call from my mom. My dad's health is declining and my mom calls me and she says, you need to get over here. Her family lives down in Texas. You need to get over here and see your dad. And she goes, mom, 
I'm not coming over to see dad unless dad's saying to you that he wants to see me because I'm not stepping into a house where I'm not wanted and not welcomed. And she said, your dad is saying that he wants to see you. You need to get down here. So she jumps on a plane and she goes down to Texas and she walks into her parents' living room and her dad and his withered body is sitting right there. And she sits down in front of her dad and she gives her dad the opportunity to speak first. And her dad says this. Her dad says, honey, there is evil in the world and then there is evil, evil in the world. And I was evil, evil towards you. I am so sorry for what I did to you. I am so sorry for the pain and the misery that I put you through. Would you please forgive me? Holy tears falling. She led her dad to the Lord. And it wasn't her manipulation and it wasn't her scheming. It wasn't her bullying or forcing her agenda. Do you know what it was? It was her taking her family and saying, God, here, here, you love my dad more than I do. You love my mom more than I do. You love the people in my family more than I ever could. Would you please work out your salvation for them? And not only did God work out his salvation for that family, but he did it in a way that was satisfying to the meek of heart. Only our God. And so Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Why? Because they're going to inherit the earth. The ones who are willing to let it all go. Think about it. The ones who won't bully and force their agenda. The ones who aren't running around going, well, I need all of this stuff. The ones who are willing to go, God, it's all in your hands. God takes it all and he makes it beautiful. And then he goes, here is your inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Maybe you're in a place like that tonight where you feel like things are just over your head, out of your control. You can't do anything about it. And you're stressed and you're frustrated because you feel like you should be able to do something about it. I got news for you. If God is for you. Come on, church, finish it. Who can be against you? And we gotta learn to trust that. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they will be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I'd say it means something like this, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who have made hearing and obeying the voice of God their highest delight in life. Because so often our obedience is all about outcome. So we're going to follow God because we think that on the other side of obedience is all of this stuff that we want. And that's okay. That's part of faith. That we follow God and there's reward that's built into it. But I also think that it's a huge part of faith that oftentimes what God will do is he will lead us into circumstances in which we are reduced to blind obedience. And we don't know how God is going to reward. But I think part of what God is doing is he's trying to find, he's trying to suss out in that process like, can I be your reward? <laughs> and so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be what you're going to find is that as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, living in the right way, doing the right thing, saying yes to the will of God, no matter what it costs you, that all of the deep hungers of your heart will be satisfied. Can I get an amen from somebody? And I, this one, all of these beatitudes are so very personal for me. I've lived them in so many different ways, but I think about 
And with this, we'll start making our way to communion, but I think about the transition that my wife Mandy and I had from Denver five and a half years ago. Some of you know the story. We were in Denver from 2009 to 2017, and we moved there in 2009. We had three kids at the time, and I remember moving to, we moved to Denver, Colorado to help plant a church with some friends. And when we went there, idealistic 28-year-old, you know, I remember thinking to myself, the best thing, like the best future that I can imagine for us is a future where we're in a city that we love, with people that we love, doing work that we love for like the rest of our lives. So how long am I going to be here doing this ministry? Like I never saw that ministry as like a stepping stone to anything else. I just thought I'm going to be here forever. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, you know, like would be awesome is me being like 90 years old and preaching the gospel some Sunday morning and I die in the pulpit and they bury me in the backyard and we call it a life. (laughs) That sounded like a good life. And I've heard it said that if you want to hear God laugh, what do you do? You make plans. And it wasn't in the plans of the Lord. And we came here in 2017 and I remember coming to this church, this community, and I remember being so overwhelmed Friday night. I remember being so overwhelmed by the grace and by the kindness, by the love that people showed me. And also I remember being so flipping lost. I got all of my life, my yes had always led me into stuff that made sense, but this doesn't make sense. In that other city, I was that guy doing that thing, and people knew me as that guy doing this thing. And now I've stepped out of that into this, and I don't understand it. Lord, it was so like existentially disorienting for me. I've told people it was like being put in a witness protection program. Like, yeah, you were that guy over there, but over here, like, here's your new name, and here's your job, and here's your credit card, and here's your house, and here are your friends. Have a nice life, you know? Or it was like if you took, uh, if you took Harry Potter and you plucked him out of Harry Potter and you dropped him in Middle Earth. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and I would come to work here and then I would go home at night and I would just walk. I just remember this. It was the first couple years of being here. I would walk the sidewalks. I would walk the trails around my house. I would go, God, it doesn't make sense. How, wh- why? What is the plan? What is your purpose in this? What are you saying? What are you doing? And that went on for a really long time. And I'll tell you what the turning point for me in that whole process was, was that the Lord started saying to me, Andrew, am I enough for you? Yeah, you're enough for me. No, Andrew, am I enough for you? Yeah, God, of course, you're enough for me. No, Andrew, am I enough for you? And of course, we know what the answer to that is, right? Yes, God is enough for us. That's the theologically correct answer. But you know what? I think a lot of us, when we answer that question, yeah, God, you're enough. We treat God like a consolation prize. Oh, yeah, God, you're enough for me. But it would also be really amazing if you could make all of my dreams come true. Then I'd be really happy. Oh, yeah, God, you're enough for me. But man, if I just had like this amount of money in my bank account, then I'd be really content and self-satisfied and happy. Oh yeah, God, you're enough for me. But if you could just like fix this situation over here. And if it's God plus, it's actually not God at all. The psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire on it besides you. 
and my flesh and my heart may fail me. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when it turned for me was when I started realizing that even if I was in the grave and it felt like a grave to me, if I had Jesus in the grave, then that was all the, that was all the resurrection that I could ever want. <laughs> because when you have God, friends, do you know what you have? Everything. Can you stand tonight? Tonight, family, would you lift your hands to the Lord? And I want you to start locating yourself here in these Beatitudes. Some of you are most definitely the poor in spirit tonight. Life has thrown you a curveball. Something happened in your business this week. A conversation happened in your marriage that broke your heart. You found out something about your kids this week. It's got your heart broken. Maybe you got a diagnosis. If that's you tonight, the kingdom is yours. God is for you. And some of you are here tonight, and there are deep pockets of grief and pain that you've never let go to the Lord. You've been hiding it because it's too painful and it's too awful, and so you're trying to be private about it, and you're trying to manage it, and you want, you've been putting on a, oh, bless your heart, I just see you. You've been putting on a brave face for God. Tonight, you don't need to put on that brave face anymore. You can take that off. And some of you, you just feel like you're in over your head. Situation that you had your hands around, it's out of your hands all of a sudden. You can't control it anymore, and you can't do anything about it. And it feels like your grip is loosening, like it's slipping, and the whole thing feels like it's slipping away. And tonight, you don't have to try to control it anymore. Tonight, the Spirit invites you to let it go. And some of you, your yes has led you into a place that's very hard and very confusing and very empty. And I'm here to say to you tonight that God is yours and you have everything. And he's offering himself to you lavishly. And so Jesus, we yield ourselves to you. Friends, would you welcome the spirit into whatever place that is for you tonight? We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. We say, fall like rain upon us. Fall like rain upon us. Upon weary hearts, fall like rain. Upon hungry hearts, fall like rain. Upon those who feel like life is slipping away, fall like rain. Upon those who are grieving tonight, fall like rain. Church, just receive the gift of the Spirit tonight. Welcome the gift of the Spirit. Welcome the gift of the Spirit. Begin to call upon God. The Scripture says, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The reason that we know these beatitudes are true is because Jesus lived them. Because Jesus was the poor in spirit. Because Jesus mourned. Because Jesus was meek. He didn't bully or force his agenda. Because Jesus did the will of God unto death. And the Lord, our God, raised him up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We know that this is true because Jesus lived it and we can trust him. So church, would you place your life again in Jesus' hands? He is capable of handling it all. We trust you, Jesus. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. 
do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You don't just give us ideas about you, Jesus. You give us your own body and your own blood. You offer us yourself. You offer us yourself. And so teach us to put our trust in you again tonight. We're praying in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm inviting our communion servers to come forward to serve communion tonight. You'll come forward as the ushers dismiss you and you'll come and take your communion elements back to your seat. We're gonna sing this song of worship in response and then I'll be up in a few minutes. Don't take communion by yourself. I'm gonna get up in a few minutes and I'll lead us to the table together. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.